This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on the Bigger Picture, and I'm Juliet Jacobs. One of the most endangered animal species anywhere in the world, the existence of the Sumatran rhinoceros is still in critical danger. Exact numbers of this beautiful creature are unknown, but it is a species in a situation that needs bold, targeted, and urgent action. Joining me now is John Payne, the Executive Director of the Bornean Rhino Alliance, or BORA for short, to discuss what needs to be done to prevent the first extinction of a mammal species in Malaysia since 1932. Welcome, John. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks, Juliet. John, um, you hail from Britain, I understand. What is it that first brought you to Malaysia? Well, I think I had an interest in wildlife from a very early age. For what reason, I don't know. But I was very lucky to be... um, at university age in Britain in the 1970s, which is a sort of golden era, so I actually quite easily got a government scholarship to study mammals in Malaysia. I was very keen to study wildlife in tropical rainforests, and it just by luck it turned out that I came to Malaysia. And I spent about two years in Pahang doing research for my doctoral degree. Was this in Tamanagara? Actually a place called Kurao Wildlife Reserve, very nice little reserve, much much nearer to Kuala Lumpur. So what else did you do in Peninsula Malaysia? Well, I, I did that field research, went back to England, wrote my PhD thesis, and in fact what happened was I, I was already interested in the fact that there was something, an NGO called WWF Malaysia, mm-hmm. which had been established in fact quite early in 1972 in Malaysia as a branching out of the earlier WWF, a global NGO. And of course, if you can imagine, in the 1970s, it was the idea of wildlife conservation was, was pretty new globally, let alone Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And the big problem for WWF Malaysia in the 1970s was to get people to do, go on the ground into the forest and do fieldwork. There were just, frankly, there were almost no Malaysians at that time, even, even with the right sort of academic background, background. let alone the interest. Okay. So I consider myself lucky that at that time there was an urgent need in WWF Malaysia for field researchers to go and do things in the forest and I took up that job in 1979 and as it happened the job was in Sabah and my office base was in the Sabah Forestry Department Sandakan initially for two years and then that went on and on and on thereafter. For about uh, how many years has it been now? Well, it's pretty much up to present with some breaks in Indonesia. You can see really that's sort of a 35-year time frame, pretty much. Okay, and you were the state-level head of WWF Malaysia from 1982 to 1998, if I'm correct. Yeah, it sounds very grand, but as I just mentioned, <laughs> the, the fact of the matter was um, there was hardly anyone else, so I had, had this good relationship with the forestry department by, right. by that time, 1982. And I stayed there, and I got married in 1984, also in Sandakan, and then... And you, just you know, stayed. things always change. There's always a need to do some something in, in light of changing circumstances in conservation as well as anything else. So when you say you were in Indonesia, were you there for, uh, for conservation work as well under your capacity with WWF or...? Somewhat different. Uh, I went there from 1999 to 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, as it happened, you know, we all needed change, right? So I'd been in Sabah on wildlife work for about 20 years by that stage. Okay. And in 1999, I had the opportunity to work on something called a production forestry project. As if you recall, in the 1990s, that was the beginning of this sort of era that we hear about now of forest loss and degradation in not only Malaysia, but Indonesia. So there are a number of programs largely involving the European Union funding and the government of Indonesia to try and get some handle on management of natural forests for timber production. Like many things, that's all history now, but I took the opportunity to become the ecologist in one of those programs in Kalimantan. Interesting. And you're currently actually the executive director of the Borneo Rhino Alliance. Uh, what drew you to the plight of the Sumatran rhino in particular? In fact, my interest goes back a long way. 
you may recall there's a place called Endarompin yes, State Park. The original idea for that, in fact, also came in the 1970s when uh, Pelitan and some other experts found that there was a small breeding population of Sumatran rhinos mm-hmm. in the Endarompin area on the border of Pahang, Johor. And in fact, that was to some extent that finding of those breeding rhinos was an impetus in the 1970s and early 80s to establish Endarompin State Park. Now, those rhinos are now extinct, which I might come back to later. But I was working on my doctoral degree fieldwork in Pang. And yet again, you know, people who were sort of interested and had some sort of experience organizing things in the forest, in other words, having an academic background as well as an interest to go out camping and looking for rhinos. So a group of people involving Pahilitan, um Peace Corps volunteers at that time got together and organised a survey to estimate the number of rhinos in the proposed Endarompin Park. And it seems crazy now, but I was one of the team leaders. I was only 20-something, but again, there was just not (laughs) many biologists around with field experience. At the time. So that hooked me rather at a tender early age in my 20s on on the species. And the clear realisation that even then, in fact, even way back, even before the Second World War, the Sumatran rhino always was the most endangered species in Malaysia. Yep. It's always had that I- iconic value. And so when I then went to Sabah in 1979 with WWF Malaysia, one of my own personal priorities was to look at the status of rhinos. And we had a rather similar experience. We found in 1980 that there was a very small breeding population of rhinos near Lahadatu. Mm-hmm. Now it's called Tabin Wildlife Reserve and there aren't any wild rhinos left. But at that time, there was a similar idea, which I was involved in with the Forestry Department of Sabah and WWF, to create a protected area to preserve the Sumatran rhino in Sabah, which became Tabin Wildlife Reserve in 1984. So I was involved in all that, and in fact, I was simultaneously involved in that era, early 1980s, with, with the very first global program uh, to try and form a global captive breeding group. So if I elaborate on that a little bit, so you can imagine if there's a few breeding rhinos in one place, the idea is you have Endarompin State Park, Tabin Wildlife Reserve, and that happened. Both of those protected areas were, in fact, established by the state governments. At that time, it was already apparent, I think, to, to many of us, not only me, but, of course, in government, that the era of extensive forests and relying on timber, like Pahang, certainly certainly Sabra in the 1970s and 80s, their biggest source of income was, yes. was timber exports, right? So everyone who had thought about it knew that era would, would eventually end and that there would be an expansion of agriculture. Everyone knew that. We didn't know at that time it would largely be oil palm, but we knew it there would be happen. big plantations would happen in a matter of course. And we also knew, and again, when I say we, we meant, I meant WWF, Sabah Forest Department, Pelitan and so on. We all knew that there were rhinos scattered around in these areas that would eventually become agricultural plantations. So there was, um, although it was controversial, as always, and if, if you want to do something with wildlife, catch them and put them in caged, cages, controversial. But the gist was there are a number of interested people in Peninsula Maze in Sabah, both government and NGO, who thought, why don't we start now, in the early 90s, 80s, catch these sort of stray wild rhinos that cannot possibly be in protected areas in the long term because of economic development catch them and work together in some way globally to have a global captive breeding population. And that that idea was crystallised at a meeting of those various interested parties in Singapore in 1984. 84, yeah. So I was also heavily involved in that. So I had that history in the 1980s of thinking, how do we try and save this extremely endangered species? In 1986, around 1986, um, that, that sort of the idea, right, of a global managed captive breeding group 
had really unraveled in many ways. Um, and let me take on the Sabah example, right? Um, in 1985, the state government had reversed, reversed an earlier decision. So in 1984, the state government agreed to a program involving a group of U.S. zoos, United States zoos and Peninsular Malaysia, catch rhinos and work together, build a facility in Sepilok, Sabah, as it happened. The subsequent government in 1985 overturned that and actually put a blanket ban on export. There was export of rhinos from 1985, okay. which, by the way, was only overturned about a year ago in, in uh, really? 2013 by the state government. But those apparently simple decisions, really. It meant that then that Sabah had to work, work alone. From 1985, um, it was decided that Sabah would do its own project, which was actually completely the wrong thing. It was a political decision, in my view. And, and also that, that change in thinking in Sabah, in this case, or similar things happened in the Indonesian Peninsula as well. But that, that thinking eventually led to the establishment of a new department, Sabah Wildlife Department, okay. in 1988. Previously, wildlife came under forestry, as it does in Indonesia, for example. Yeah. So how mm. did Bora get its start, and what does the organisation primarily focus on? So uh, around that time, 1986-87, you know, I've been very much involved with you know, my, my colleague, the late Patrick Andau, who was head of wildlife for many years in the 70s, 80s, 90s in Sabah. And we, I mean, both of us, so Patrick in government and myself working for WF, we, we both argued very strongly for global collaboration was needed, right? Yeah. So it was a real slap in the face when the state government decided uh, we're going to stop this and just do a project in Sabah. So uh, for my own case, I lost interest in rhinos, right? The, the thing I thought had to happen didn't happen in mm-hmm. 1986. So, again, with WWF, I did surveys of orangutans, which then, I don't want to digress too much, but showed that there were a lot more orangutans than we thought at that time. There were about 20,000 orangutans in Sabah in 1986. Um, Then looked at how to establish more protected areas, how to guide the development of nature tourism, which was coming up in Malaysia in the 1980s, those sort of things. Then I went off to Indonesia in the late 1990s, and I lost sort of interest in Sumatran rhinos, but the origin of Borneo Rhino Alliance is this. In year 2000, an American wildlife veterinarian specializing in rhino reproduction, and her name is Dr. Nan Schaefer, um, for reasons I don't really know now, she decided to set up an NGO in Sabah to try and monitor and protect wild rhinos in Tabin Wildlife Reserve. Okay. And she set that up. And it was running on year after year and, and doing fine. It was sort of stabilised and there's monitoring of wild rhinos going on. But it was quite clear, let me say, around 2007, 2008, bringing us up to nearer to the present, that there were hardly any rhinos left. People were looking for rhinos, but there weren't any. The obvious, I mean, the human mind likes to think, well, maybe we weren't looking hard or the animals have moved or something. But the answer was most of them have died, either from poaching or old age or or pathology, which I could come back on to in a minute. So Nan Schaefer, for various reasons, said in 2008, I think, let's pull out, I don't want to continue this uh, NGO, SOS Rhino Borneo, as it was called. So in the meantime, 2004, Nan had set up SOS Rhino Borneo as a not-for-profit company. Mm -hmm. She withdrew her support and the board of directors closed down in 2008. And a small group of people, which I'll name, it included me, uh, Dr. Abdul Hamid of University of Malaysia, Sabah, Cynthia Ong, a well-known NGO person in Sabah, and Isabel Lachman, who's a French lady specialising in primates. We got together with colleagues and decided let's keep this NGO going 
because it's it's a real shame after all these years to try and save a species from extinction. Someone should do something. In that case, the someones were us four. And we came up with the idea of changing the name of SOS Rhino to Borneo Rhino Alliance, mm-hmm. partly for rebranding, just having a, a, fr- a fresh yeah, chance. Yeah. But yet again, we had the same notion that to save a critically endangered species, it can't be one NGO or one person, that the impetus may come from one person, in, as in many you know, yep. endeavours in life, right? But institutionally, in a big social picture, one has to have an alliance. So the idea of the renamed SOS Rhino Borneo, Borneo Rhino Alliance being the new name, which is the official name. It's, it's, it's still a company. Yep. The idea was to have an alliance of government, NGOs, and University of Malaysia, Sabah. Okay. In the end, that also didn't work out particularly well, but the name stuck and the, the institution still exists. And in the meantime, to bring us up closer to present, it became apparent that the species was right on the edge of extinction. We'd sort of been monitoring rhinos for 30 years, we in a general sense, mm-hmm not aware that they'd gone down from maybe 15 to then to 10 and then to 8 and and as we have now, possibly only 3 left in Sabah. Coming up, we'll find out more about the the Borneo rhino and we'll find out if they can actually be brought back from the brink of extinction. On Earth Matters, The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Hello again, I'm Juliet Jacobs and this is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I have John Payne in the studio with me. John is the Executive Director of the Bornean Rhino Alliance and we're discussing the near extinction of the Sumatran rhino. Now, John, just before we get into, uh, well, we've got quite a bit into what Bora does, but can you actually just give me a quick lesson on the Sumatran rhino? So I guess the thing that people think of when they want to know it's basic biology. So, okay, I guess number one, mm, this is the smallest species of rhino that's ever existed. If you look geologically in history and look at fossils, mm-hmm. this is the smallest. And you, you, know, you know what the rhino's like. It's a sort of bulky animal with two horns or one horn. Weight is about 500 kilos. The Sumatran rhino has, for, for what is a mammal, a rather odd diet, which is that it browses on the mature leaves of a wide variety of rainforest, woody rainforest plants. And I stress that, so so unlike elephants and sladang, which basically like to eat grass and palms, yeah. you know, monkeys that like to eat fruit and insects, rhinos have a very, what is biologically a very poor quality diet. You, know, you can imagine, right, leaves are basically fibre and they've got yeah. toxins in, there's very little protein, very little minerals. So rhinos have to eat a lot and rough, very roughly 30 kilos of fresh leaves per day. So that's it. And they're, they're essentially solitary. They go around on their own. All that also, the fact that these rhinos are solitary may be a, the impact of, of, of their decline through hunting, which I'll also come on to in a minute, that it may be that they are much more social in the past when there are lots of them. Right. But the fact of the matter is that basically they spend their life going around the forest, eating leaves, wallowing in mud wallows. They make <laughs> themselves with their horns and their feet so from about 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, everywhere I know will go to its mud wallow. It's a time to relax. They sleep a lot because they feed at night often. Okay. And basically the key thing about wallowing mud is it keeps them cool. Because right. they're such a big bulky animal, 500 yeah. kilos, and then no trunk or no big ears like elephants. So they really have a problem releasing their body heat. So in an evolutionary way, they've had to evolve to keep quiet, either in water or mud, mud as it happens in the middle of the day. So that's their lifestyle, a bit of a bit of a boring one from a human anthropomorphic point of view. I was reading that at the beginning of the 20th century, the, the subspecies of the Sumatran rhino was actually widespread over the island of Borneo, and this d- drastically changed, um, and that they were close to extinction by the 1960s. But I understand this actually, the reason for this actually started from way back, some thousand years ago. 
It certainly did. Uh, yeah, I mean, yet, yet again, I, I think all of us as human beings, we tend to think of something that's not far from our lifetime. We tend to think of 10 or 20 or maybe 100 years ago. But what I probably, sh- how I should put it is in this context, that if you go back, say, arbitrarily 1,000 years ago, right, mm-hmm. rather than 100 years ago, throughout Southeast Asia, there were two species of rhinos. It's just how it happened. Um, there's one that we now call the Javan rhino, which is sort of like a miniature Indian rhino with one horn, more an open plains animal that lives in coastal plains, at least historically. And the Sumatran rhino, which um, is more of a forest-dwelling species. So th- those two around 1,000 years ago. But sometime more than 1,000 years ago, and we'll never know who or when, but someone somewhere in China got the idea that powdered rhino horn is the best ingredient to reduce fever or be a cooling ingredient, which I regard as more or less the same thing. Mm-hmm. So they set in motion sometime more than a 1,000 years ago the idea that powdered rhino horn is an important ingredient in traditional, what is now traditional Chinese medicine. Healing medicines, yeah. And that notion continues till today, even though people found out about aspirin in 1780 and paracetamol in 1880, <laughs> but still there's a feeling that rhino horn is a cooling element in traditional Chinese medicine. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's there, whatever you say. But you can see where I'm going. The impact was that because more than a thousand years ago this was an ingredient, mm-hmm. and because these animals are solitary, you know, they're slow breeding, they wallow in the mud in the day, so we actually historically you could actually find them quite easily and probably kill them with spears. Kill them easily, yeah. So if you imagine a sort of thousand years of intense pressure, and, and also if you remember, China was a trading nation from way yes. back, right? Yep. They'd go to in, what is now Indonesia, Malaysia, and so on. So there's this market for rhino horn over a thousand years plus and the the num the numbers just would have gone down and down you know from what would have been one can imagine hundreds of thousands easily mm. a thousand years ago probably down into the low thousands a hundred years ago that sort of order right so if you if we go up to say a hundred years ago early 20th century one can imagine the numbers have been pushed down by relentless hunting for the horn down down to maybe a few thousands and importantly in scattered areas right so yeah. those so where there was people they would have been wiped out and where there weren't many people, such as, you know, central Sabah or big parts of Sumatra, all those sort of remote areas 100 years ago, that's where the rhinos remained. Not necessarily in good habitat. I should just make that point, right? If mm-hmm. The fact that they're in Tabin now or were or in the mountains of Sumatra doesn't necessarily mean it's ideal habitat. It's probably very marginal. They probably, if I may put it the way, the rhinos would probably prefer to be in the lowlands, fertile soils, bit of food quality, more open forest and, and so on. So that's that's the big picture, right? And the upshot has been that both species, I mentioned the Javan is now yeah. found, as it happens only on Java, mm-hmm. and the Sumatran, which is found mainly on the island of Sumatra, which is all in Indonesia, with this tiny number in Kalimantan and Sabah. So it's that big historical pattern that I wanted to, to get yeah. to you. So, yeah. But the upshot is, with that historical background, is that both those species, Javan and Sumatran rhino, are their, their situation is very different from what is in the past. And, and I, I, perhaps I'd make this point, uh, that the, if you have a species where the numbers are very low, they're mm-hmm. very scattered in different areas, um, they're not breeding, you, you can't treat them as a orangutan or elephant that, will can, that can breed up in numbers. Somehow the only way is to let them go extinct or think of ways to, to boost the breeding rate, which, which cannot happen by leaving them in the forest anymore. Right. And... Now the Sumatran rhino is functionally extinct in Borneo and in Malaysia. What does this mean exactly? The term functionally extinct, I guess it's not really recognised by the big bodies like the International Union for Conservation of Nature officially. It's a simple concept, and let me give an example. So say 
you know, say, for example, there's 10 rhinos in Sabah. Actually, I think there's less, but say there's 10. Okay, you can expect maybe half a male and half a female, so, so five a female. And you could expect out of those five females that one would be too old and one might be too young and one might have endometriosis, which I'll also come on to. So you might imagine you've got 10 rhinos. It may be that only one or two are actually capable to produce babies. Right. And if they happen to wander around without being mated, then it's just a matter of time before they go extinct. So this is the point, right? So you can have, say, for example, 10 rhinos in Sabah, for example. Yeah. But if you, if you look at it in the way I've just outlined, there's no way they're going to boost up numbers again. They're just going to drift to extinction, whether it's tier 2014 or 2050 doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It means there's just not enough breeding animals left to sustain the species. They cannot reproduce. Between 1984 and 1995, a total of 22 Sumatran rhinos were captured in Peninsula Malaysia and Sabah for a captive breeding project. Mm. What happened to all of these? A rather long and complicated story, that. But the, the, the origin was the 1984 IUCN-brokered agreement to have a global international program. The one in Singapore? Yes, the meeting is in Singapore. And it was agreed, you know, Pahilitan was there, Ministry of Forestry Indonesia. I was there for WWF at that time. Patrick, Patrick Andal, the wildlife boss in Sabra at that time, we were all there, various <coughs> rhino specialists. So that whole idea of a global program really, as I've mentioned earlier, tended to unravel and everyone tended to do their own thing. So the American zoos actually ended up working with Indonesia rather than Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, different zoos, all the zoos wanted a pair of rhinos. So when rhinos started to go to America, different zoos had a bit of a battle as to who got the rhinos. So all those factors came into play. Anyway, meantime, Malaysia under Pilatan caught... 12 rhinos, and Sabah under the Sabah, new, then new Sabah Wildlife Department, caught 10 rhinos. So various things happened. So number one was, I think by luck, really, in the case of Sabah, of the 10 rhinos caught, eight were mature males. Mm-hmm. One was a mature female, one was a young female. So straight away you can see that's not a very good prospect, right, Before, to breed. Yeah. You wouldn't really want that. In Peninsula Malaysia, on the other hand, uh, out of the 12, nine, nine were females, Three were males. One of those was very small when he brought in captivity. One of the males only came in in 1994, right, at the, as the program was sort of already getting quite criticised by many people. And then, sad to say, some academic person in the 1960s had written a paper to say that the Bornean and Malayan Sumatran rhinos are different subspecies. Oh. So I won't go into detail. It's just like, I mean... To my mind, it's just like saying sort of uh, Malaysians and Europeans are different, right? So they can't, you can't mix them. Well, my wife's late wife is Malaysian, but um, my, my point is, I guess, that, that sometimes academia interferes in conservation. So for many decades, there was this feeling that we generally shouldn't mix the Bornean, in other words, Sabah rhinos with the Peninsular Malaysian or the Indonesian ones because they're different subspecies. I mean, frankly, I mean, it's, they're very closely related. It's, it's a very moot point whether you want to classify them as different subspecies or races. What should have happened right from the beginning, in my view, was that Peninsula Malaysia and Sabah should have interacted, had a single programme. And you'd think it would be possible, right? I mean, yeah. we're part of Malaysia, but based on that academic paper from 1965, then there was this resistance and that... That there was no inter- there was interaction on an informal basis, as we're talking now, right? There was no exchange of animals between Sabah and Peninsula Malaysia, not enough sharing of information. Um, and maybe that was, you know, that, that was the gist of it, right? And one, once you get into that pattern, right, you get this sort of feeling we can't mix them. You know, Peninsula Malaysia is doing that, Sabah's doing that. Then it sort of has its own inertia, an initiative, right? You know what I mean? It goes on and on, and the years go by, and no one is brave enough to say, look, 
we should get together and do this. But but mm. we in Malaysia never did. And I guess a sad thing was uh, that, as many listeners may recall, around the year 2002-2003, I don't recall the details, but there's something like five Sumatran rhinos left in one facility in Sungai Dusun, Selangor. Mm-hmm. And all of them died within the space of about a year in, okay. in captive breeding facilities. And the fact of the matter was that the because of this routine, right, the, 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 the facility had been there for years, the keepers had been there for years, no one thought outside the box. And the reality was all those rhinos died of poor care, uh, bacterial infections. The whole thing became a sort of routine, yet another project. The, the sort of initial impetus and enthusiasm and drive from the 1980s had sort of been spent. So the last rhinos in Malaysia died in captivity of essentially poor care, disease, mostly Escherichia coli and Klebsiella bacteria. And that was it. And, well, and let me put it this way. I mean, that was a tragedy in itself. It shouldn't mm-hmm. have happened. However, I think I, I'd like to mention a couple of points. There. So number one is that I mean, the, the era of, of, of nations, Malaysia, Indonesia, Britain, whatever it happens to be, it is true that there's an institutional structure and legislation. And so I think it's fair to say in all nations in the world, not only Malaysia, that wildlife comes under the purview of a government, either state or national level government. But actually, um, the, the sort of drive and, and the sort of initiatives you need from NGOs mm-hmm. and from corporations, I'll just mention Saim Dabi Foundation briefly now, but the, the, uh, the donor to Bora is mainly almost entirely Saim Dabi Foundation. So the sort of you know, impetus and drive and the ability to change plans quickly. You know, for example, in government, you have a plan. You can't change the plan once you've got a plan. You have to keep going, with it, even if you realize it's wronger. Yeah. But if you have this element of N, what I call NGO corporations in, in the mix and government delegates, delegates its responsibility and power yep. to other people in a formal way, as we are in Bora, we mm-hmm. have an agreement with the Sabah Wildlife Department, then you can turn the thing around us. So a program that sort of becomes a sort of bureaucratic routine, which is sad to say, I think what happened with rhinos in Malaysia, it could be sustained as a much more passionate and forward-looking program able to, to change. But three Sumatran rhinos were captured from the wild in Sabah yep. in recent years. And uh, I think it was a male in 2008, females and two females, one in 2011 and 2014. Mm. What has become of them? Did they suffer the same fate? Well, they haven't. I mean, I, I don't want to blow my own trumpet unnecessarily, but it's almost an illustration of what I've just said. So those three rhinos are healthy and alive uh, in captivity, mm-hmm. as it happens in Tabin Wildlife Reserve, in small fenced facilities. So each of those three rhinos has its own little paddock of less than a hectare and a night stall. Um, two keepers per rhino, and most importantly a veterinarian, Dr. Zainal Zahari Zainuddin, who was for many years in Pelitan as the senior vet in Pelitan, who moved four years ago now to join this program in Sabah to devote most of his time to looking after these three rhinos. They're so precious. And the reality is, again, I mean, I, I'm not criticising any individual or government agency, but the reality is if you have a very tight program mm. run, in this case, by a professional wildlife vet with long experience, keepers who live on site... Yeah, are not bound by, you know, government regulations. They can work through the night when they have to, all those sort of things, right? It makes yeah. all the difference. So the care, the husbandry, the medical care is is much 
better, is actually optimum under those sort of conditions. So there's rhinos are healthy and alive. The problem, as you can see straight away, is one male and two females, right? That, that's almost nothing. It's very, it's almost close, to, it's closer to zero than it is to 10. Mm. Um, so if I may elaborate a little bit on that. So the male is named Tam. He was caught in a place called Kretam in an oil palm plantation, as it happens in 2008. He's fine. He's healthy. He produces sperm, which of course is vital. He's his role is to produce sperm, Trace right, to save them. the species. But he's getting on. We know he's well over 20. He's probably between 20 and 25 years old, which is sort of, you know, maybe late 40s or 50 for a human male, that equivalent. So he's getting on a bit. The two females have even bigger problems. So you'd, you'd almost think this couldn't be true. But so um, the female we named Puntong, caught in 2011 in Tabin Wildlife Reserve, which, by the way, w- was an important factor. I mean, the state government... Despite this being controversial, did, the state government did agree to capturing wild rhinos in Tabin, right. whereas Tabin had been set up in 1984 to keep wild rhinos. So that, I wanted to mention that point. So Puntong has endometriosis, amongst other things, but that means her uterus is full of cysts, oh which are not particularly pathological, but they're obviously uncomfortable for her. The big problem is, if you remember your sort of biology, is that um, the sperm meets an egg and forms a little tiny embryo and that embryo what it's supposed to do is move down and implant itself on the lining of the uterus and become a fetus but with all those cysts most of the lining of the uterus cannot uh, attach or cannot take on and bear a pregnancy right so although puntong is cycling so about about every 24 25 days she produces a few eggs um it's unlikely she can bear a, a pregnancy and a baby and then the third the second female rhino, the third rhino, Iman, caught in Danum Valley in March 2014. She's even worse off. She has the same thing, but she has... It's, it's tumours in the... She has... So Iman has tumours in the uterus, uh, which are not in themselves cancer or pathological, but mm-hmm. they really fill up her, her uterus. And she has the same thing, but worse. There's absolutely no way... She cannot be even impregnated. And her, her, her womb is full of tumours. Indeed. So she, she cannot produce a baby by natural mating, even though she too is cycling. Every month or so, she produces a few eggs. So, in, I mean, it's almost blindingly obvious, right? So yeah. <laughs> to requote the functionally extinct thing, we have a male and two females. We have them in captivity together. They're monitored. Um, the progesterone level is looked at so we know when their cycling is, uh, all sorts of things going to maximise their health. Um, but we have two... Female rhinos producing eggs every month and a male producing sperm on and off. It, it's almost blindingly obvious that to produce babies, has, we have to now think of in vitro fertilization. That's the way. Okay. You wrote a paper, you co-authored a paper, Preventing the Extinction of the Sumatran Rhinoceros, which gave a critical account of how Malaysia made some pretty bad mistakes. You kind of mm. mentioned them earlier. Mm. Um, could you elaborate on the findings for from that paper? Okay, that, that paper came out in, a, in an Indonesian online journal uh, early in 2014. What, what I, with my background, and Dr Zainal, who's a wildlife vet with 30 years' experience in Malaysia, and Dr Hamid, who's a lecturer in University of Malaysia, Sabah, who actually did his first thesis in Danam Valley in the early 1990s on Sumatran rhino when they were breeding there. So we thought we'd really, we should outline not not with new information but compile existing information mostly in not in public domain mm-hmm. with their own combined views and thoughts to give the big picture 
what what we in Malaysia did wrong with the Sumatran rhino. That's the gist of the paper. Inevitably, it came up with this rather unfortunate finding that most of the rhinos, I can't give you exactly how many, but most of them died of poor care in captivity. But I think the other message, the more positive message that we wanted to give, or the message you want to dangle in front of people, is that there's always good things about mistakes, right? You should mm-hmm. learn from them. Yep. So now we know you need very close care and attention. Um, we know all sorts of things, right? In, in, we know our rhinos need 200 grams of horse pellets a day to give them enough extra minerals. Um, we know when to put females and males together and when not to. All those, how to manage the rhinos, that resulted from that long period of 1980s to 90s and eventually culminated in many deaths. We now know how to manage rhinos and what, what we shouldn't be doing, what we should be doing. And it's rather sad that I know many of my colleagues in the conservation world, their view when they when they know what I'm doing, right, they say, well, we tried all that before and it's a failure. Why don't you look after them in the wild? So I have to reiterate all the things I've been telling you today and say that that's not the case. Though. We've learned from the mistakes. Okay. Now we are ready and prepared to keep rhinos in captivity, maximise their chance of living to ripe old age, maximise the chance of making use of their eggs and sperm. That, that's the way we should be looking. So even though that paper gives a rather negative tone, embarrassing to some, some people, I think, <laughs> um, that was really the messenger to review what we've learned in 30 years and how we should move on. And how can we move on? Can we bring a species back from extinction? Well, OK, let me put it like this. Uh, the, there is... There's a whole, like, like any human venture, right, there's trends in history. So, you know, the trend in the last 50 years has been national parks and protected areas. That's fine, they're ongoing. Um, there's talk of having wildlife corridors in the landscape, forest restoration to bring back the habitat, public awareness, all those sort of things. So the, those things are all, all important, right? That's the way to conserve nature and conserve biodiversity. But the trouble is when you've got a species on the edge of extinction, like the Sumatran rhino, that's clearly not enough. Logically, we should give up on the species and let it go extinct. Mm-hmm. Except, and there's a, big, there's a big but, the big but is that people who deal with national parks, wildlife conservation, they tend to have a forestry background, biology, zoology, like myself. Huh? And they're not veterinarians, they're not lab people. Now, I want to mention that if, I mean, if we were here, let's pick another arbitrary number, 1974, right? People will be saying, well, you can't produce babies, human babies in the lab, right? You just can't do it. It's, it's unethical and, you know, it will never work, right? You yeah. need to put the sperm egg together in the animal. You can't do it in the lab. But as you may know, what, what I'm getting to with is, right, in 1978, the first test tube baby was created. And she's still alive and yep. she had babies. And there's now more than 5 million human beings in the world created in the laboratory. And again, it should be blindingly obvious to requote what I said just now save the species by producing embryos in the lab. This is the way to quickly boost numbers of rhinos. Of course, it's not quite that simple, but the technology is there. It's done with buffalo, cows, goats, pigs, as well as humans, right? So the basic technology is known. But it's incredible in this day and age that no one really has seriously thought of, to my knowledge, saving endangered wildlife species by producing embryos in the lab. I think some people have, but they've always said, well, it's too difficult or too expensive, or we better save them in the wild. But this to, to Borneo Rhino Alliance, and, and I must say the government of Sabah, Sabah Wildlife Department and other senior people in government, even at federal level who I've talked to privately, are very much on board personally with this idea of let's try and save the species by producing embryos in the lab. I must, to preempt a question you might want to ask, is so you produce, say you produce some embryos, right? What do you do with them? 
So the optimum thing to do, the optimum thing to do is work with Indonesia, which I haven't mentioned, but has three fertile female Sumatran oh. rhinos in captivity in Lampung province, Indonesia. Okay. You have three surrogate mothers straight away. And and really, if you look rationally, right, I mean, it, it's it's a, an entirely human thing that we have nation states like Malaysia and Indonesia. It's fine, no, no problem. But if you want to save a species, those barriers should not longer should be there, exist, right? You yeah. should, if Malaysia can produce embryos in the next two years, say, one thing we could freeze them. One good thing is technology. We know that you can freeze embryos for many decades, right? That's a known thing and wait for the next generation of biologists to think how to do it. But the obvious thing is if we in Malaysia could collaborate with Indonesia, it would be a perfect project, you think. The first, to my knowledge, the first saving of a critically endangered species in the host countries, not in Europe or America, by the relevant nations working together on one program. Again, it seems so blindingly obvious, but you know, the human brain doesn't really work so rationally as that. There's always lots of objections as to why we can't or shouldn't do such things. So there are no actual steps being taken to sort of initiate this or there's no nothing? Actually, there are steps. Um, there have been a number of uh, informal and I guess semi-formal meetings between Sabah. It has to be Sabah because we have the rhinos now for the time being. So the state of Sabah government and N- NGOs, yep. myself, Bora, and our counterparts, Ministry of Forestry in Indonesia and yep. the in- Indonesian NGOs. Um, that process is ongoing. I think what I'd say as of now, end of 2014, the interest is growing, but you know, there's, there's always people to say, can't we keep protecting them in the wild or should we do this, shouldn't we do that? And it's, again, it's always the same in any human endeavor, right? You think of something that's actually quite new. Mm-hmm. I can imagine 10 years from now, if what I'm just saying happens, it'll just be like normal, it'll be right. Yeah. But once you say, what, Indonesia and Malaysia are working together? producing rare animals in a laboratory well should it be in indonesia or malaysia who should have the babies all those questions which to me are totally irrelevant right they're all irrelevant but they come up time and again if you have a group of people those questions always come up if you want to save the species they're not relevant The, the questions are who are the experts in the world as of now who do we get from wherever in the world to form the team now and start doing it those are the real questions we need to be asking so just just to conclude how can we actually as the public actually get involved in this is there anything we can do to sort of initiate this i think i'd simply say this uh, i mean as you might imagine there's nothing really directly right it's not even a question of raising money necessarily although we do need funding to see this through i think it's more in whatever way possible whatever venue try to be positive on this idea that I've been elaborated, right? Let's, mm-hmm. let's in Indonesia and Malaysia, we join together, save a critically endangered species jointly by producing embryos in the lab and putting them in surrogate mothers. I mean, if you ask the average person on the street, they'll always have some sort of questions, some of those examples I gave. Why not this? Why don't that? What about that? But if one is positive and that feeds back, you know, to your relative in government or generally if, if articles go out in, in the media... It can actually shift people's opinions, right? You can get someone who suddenly someday thinks, oh, yeah, that is a good idea. Mm-hmm. So I think that general general support in any venue, whether you're in a university or reading newspapers or have any link with anyone who happens to be a relative working in government, say this is a good idea rather than say, well, we can't do that for whatever reason, which is the usual human reaction. Thank you so much, John. For more information, you can visit the BorneoRhinoAlliance.org. Um, John, any parting messages before we go? My parting message is a a more generic one, which is that human history is littered with people saying we can't do anything. So about 100 years ago, I mean, um, a major physicist in in Britain said machines that are heavier than air cannot possibly fly. And then in 1904, the Wright brothers flew a 
a machine made of wood and iron. So it's the same thing with this Sumatran rhino case or any, any human endeavor, right? Please do not say it can't be done or shouldn't be done. Think about ways in which it could be done. Assuming the effort is, is positive, right? Try and support it, right, and think, think, rather than think about why things shouldn't be done. Thank you so much, John. That was John Payne, the executive director of Bornean Rhino Alliance, or BORA, who was discussing the near extinction of the Sumatran rhino. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.